Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director James Gray's new sci-fi drama, Ad Astra. The film tells the story of astronaut Roy McBride, who makes a daring voyage to Neptune to discover the truth about his father, who led an interstellar mission 30 years ago and was never heard from again. Roy's journey will unravel a mystery that challenges the nature of human existence and threatens the survival of our planet. In addition to Ad Astra, Mr. Gray's credits include the feature films The Lost City of Z, The Immigrant, Two Lovers, We Own the Night, The Yards, and Little Odessa, and an episode of the television series The Red Road. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Gray spoke with director Damien Chazelle about filming Ad Astra. During their conversation, he discusses how hard it is to not rip off Stanley Kubrick, the utter difficulty of shooting with spacesuits, and finding ways in which an expansive journey across the solar system can feel small and intimate. You sit here, I see. No, 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 you take, you take. I give to you. I've done like 500 of these, and I don't know which And we somehow screwed that up. Yeah, well, it's my one. You told me it was going to go great. It's going to go great. This is the first time Damien Chazelle has ever done something like this. I haven't moderated and before, so... I know. I feel very touched. <laughs> you're you're, you're f- <laughs> uh, Well, <clears throat> it's a good segue into uh, part of the reason I am doing this is uh, I've been a huge admirer of your films, all your films, Little Odessa up to now. And... and one thing I guess I, I always found in uh, especially your, your early films was this tremendous sense of place, almost this kind of ethnographic, anthropological sort of eye towards the details of a neighborhood in New York or a type of family or something that felt very grounded and, and steeped in your own experiences, really. And now uh, we started to see a taste of kind of you venturing beyond with Lost City of Z. But in this movie, of course, you go all the way to... Uh, the outer reaches of the solar system and, and into the future. And yet it's a vision of the future that still feels incredibly grounded and relatable and, and, and believable down to the Applebee's on the moon, which is one of my favorite details. So I, I, I thought we could just start by maybe talking a little bit about how one tackles the, the future um, and, uh, uh, and make it actually feel like something that's as believable as a Brighton Beach neighborhood. Thank you. Um, one tackles the future with great trepidation. Um, here's the thing. I, I love my favorite film in the genre is 2001. I'm sure many people agree with me. Some don't, by the way. Um, other people have said to me, well, what about Star Wars? Star Wars. And I say Star Wars is fantasy. I don't, I don't see it as science fiction, really. I think it's another genre. It's almost like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, except made in a kind of bigger scale. And, and I'm, by the way, I'm not denigrating those movies because George Lucas had a tremendous sense of story. But uh, it's just a different thing. Alien I love too, but it's a horror movie. So you say to yourself, what are the science fiction touchstones? It's very hard to get away from Kubrick. It's very hard not to rip him off. I think he made a lot of decisions that were very smart, him being a man named Stanley Kubrick. They were quite smart decisions. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? How do you differentiate it? 
and I, I just tried to find out as best I could about the actual science of it and say, what is the, what's the source of it? Okay, so we're going to have a moon base. We're going to go back to the moon in 2024. And they're going to look for a place that has water. It's going to be some kind of circular base because it's going to be in a crater. So then that's what you see in the movie. Then you ask yourself, what kind of food are they going to have on the moon? Well, you can't have grass-fed beef, right? There's no grazing. Uh, grow, growing fruits and vegetables in one-sixth gravity actually has its own ch set of challenges. So it's going to be all processed food. Now, you, you realize, by the way, they're working very rigorously, and I'm not kidding, on artificial meat. And when you meet food companies, which... I had the great pleasure of doing on this production. Uh, they're very, they're, they love talking about artificial meat. It's going to be almost exactly like real meat, which the prospect sounds so revolting to me, almost exactly like real meat. Um, I don't know what to do about that. But so anyway, who are the people doing all the research on fake meat? Who are all the people doing the research on basically processed food? Nathan's, Chain, Applebee's, basically fast food and kind of food chains are doing the research uh -huh. on fake food. Yeah. Or what Michael Pollard would call edible food-like substances. <laughs> so all of a sudden you see uh, Yoshinoya beef bowl and Applebee's and stuff on the moon because that's probably the chains that would be involved. The most situated. Right. Mm -hmm. Mickey D's, without question, they did not grant me the right to use their name. So I tried. You, you I wanted swear. the golden arch. I wanted yeah. the, I was so excited. I had fantasies about <laughs> Vegas Vic, which I did get in the movie. Uh -huh. Or after, by the way, a huge legal catastrophe where they wanted me to have to pay the money every year to as long as the film exists for to Vegas Vic. I don't even know who owns Vegas Vic. Probably like Dean Martin's, you know, inheritance or something. I don't know what I don't know what who owns Vegas Vic. But in any event, I don't get out much, obviously. Um, to make a long story longer, I tried to root it in the in the the, the as much as I could in what actually they're going to have to do. And you notice, of course, that space travel is becoming a sort of weird corporate government bizarro partnership that's already in the works, right? Elon Musk is going to space. Jeff Bezos has a new thing, Virgin, and they were very like. It has to be version Atlantic. I said, why? Because it's going to be really routine. Mm. It's not going to be galactic, not, not deep space, even though astronauts consider lunar travel deep space, as I'm sure you know. So the, the, the sort of the facts on the ground dictated a lot of what it would be. And then, of course, I thought it was very funny that the guy would order a blanket, you know, for $125. So that was me throwing a joke in there. But, <laughs> but um, I wanted to say... In the face of something that's truly amazing, it's, a, it's remarkable how banal we can be. My favorite moment in 2001 is not any of the famous stuff. My favorite moment in 2001 is they find the monolith. They dig it up on the moon. I don't know how well you remember this movie, but it's pretty good. They dig up the monolith, and the guy goes like this. For a Kodak moment, it's unbelievably funny. They're faced with like a new vision of God or something, and he's yeah. like, "Ah, oh, get in for the picture." <laughs> so I, th so to me, that was funny and also weirdly kind of 
well, you know what, we're looking out there and it's kind of the same. I mean, it is, it, it actually does speak exactly to me, at least to what the movie is about, right? Is, is this idea of going to space to find ourselves. I mean, that's, that's the sort of phrase that astronauts started using in the sixties when they kind of, especially yeah. I think when they realized that maybe there wasn't going to be the immediate future of the moon and space exploration beyond that, that they thought. And, uh, but one thing we knew we had that we hadn't had before was a view back at Earth, a view back at ourselves because of that. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, you made a little picture, which I'm a big fan of, First Man. He, he, yeah, clap. It's good. Come on. Give, him the, give the man some applause for crying out loud. So, I see an interview with Armstrong. I want to say this is November of 69. This is the Pete Conrad Alan Bean trip, Apollo 12. And he's being interviewed. As you know better than I, he didn't do very much of that after a certain point. But they interview him and he said, well, where will we be, Neil, in 2001 or whatever? So I think that was the year. He's like, well, there will be lunar bases and we'll be shuttling back and forth every three minutes. And in other words, the future that he laid out, but he was not a fool. He, everything was in technological reach. But as you well know, when the space race finished, when we landed on the moon, the Russians couldn't do it, and we lost interest, and Nixon canceled the program. My point being that you understand at that moment that exploration, and particularly in that case, was not for really truly noble reasons. It was a, a matter of national pride and certainly aspirational, but that's not why we did it. We did it because there was the Sputnik threat, and that started in 1957, and it was a Cold War thing. Which is very sad to me because as pure science, basic research, I'm totally in favor of it. But when you realize we kind of went to say, oh, Russia, we can do it. You can't. And basically, you know, we did it better than anybody you know. We did it because we stole better Nazis. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. You know what I'm talking about. We, there was something called Operation Paperclip where the Americans kidnapped... Nazi rocket scientists who developed the V2, a guy named Werner von Braun was the head of the program. And we captured them and put them in Huntsville, Alabama, where there was a strange cul-de-sac filled with Nazis. <laughs> and I'm being totally serious. No, 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 this is, yes, yes. And they would sing serious. Deutschland über alles. And they had a little German beer hall. This is Huntsville, Alabama. And they created the Saturn V rocket that took us to the moon. There's a great document. Have you seen Footsteps on the Moon? It's great. With Werner von Braun's, uh, I mean, you could probably do the, you're good at impersonations. Well, I'm, not, I'm not good at a Werner von Braun impression. But, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm not going to even attempt it, but... Him narrating a documentary about space exploration is, is something. Well, he was, I mean, he used Goddard's principles about rocket flight. Yeah. So, which, and Goddard was an American from the 20s. He had developed this. But he was the guy who was behind the V2. The British had been putting out propaganda about how bad the V2 was. And it's not hitting any of its targets. But in fact, it was an incredibly successful thing. And the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, was like, this, we got to get this guy to the V2. As soon as the war is over, they kidnapped a whole bunch of them. So even the basis of our Saturn V rocket program was in a kind of weirdly morally bankrupt place because it was designed. And I'm not bad-mouthing the space program. I think it's incredible. I think it's a, a, a true, beautiful, amazing thing. 
but there is a well, kind of weird underpinning. Well, I to think it. what you're pointing to is, is to me, is like what makes the space program uh, almost even more incredible is once you kind of can see how it arises from circumstance and compromise, and it's something that I think the movie kind of uh, honors in again taking it towards the future. Is this kind of I mean the whole expedition in this movie, right? Is there is this sort of queasy moral. Uh, question not unlike uh, you know Willard and Apocalypse Now or right. or, or, uh, or Marlowe and you know and Conrad's uh, Hearts of Darkness uh, Heart of Darkness but the but the the you know the kind of um, you know this this sort of uh, uh, mix of grandiose you know we are going to further human knowledge ideals and then a kind of base. Uh, either survival instinct or right. as you're pointed to kind of uh, even crasser instinct well the whole thing there is it, it, even in 2001 or E.T., or Close Encounters, or any other film in the genre, a lot of times they're offering you an idea of false gods. Now, they're doing it brilliantly. Spielberg beats the trap because he, his movies are pitched like a fable. You don't watch E.T. and say, I want a detailed anthropological examination of what it means to be an alien. You're watching it because the kid's lonely, he wants a friend, and it's basically a metaphor. The kid's suffering from the pains of his parents' divorce. and I, So the movie gets away with it brilliantly. Kubrick gets away with it because he's got some 1960s minimalist artwork which represents some form of alien something. And you can project anything. I, I was in a museum. I think it was John McCracken, I think is the artist's name, from 1963, I think. Black slab monolith. I was in a museum. It might have been the Reign of Sophia. Where the hell did I? I've been in like 80 cities lately. I keep going to art museums every time. I want to make sure that I replenish my brain cells. But I, I saw it's a black monolith. And it's great because you can project anything you want onto it. You can say, they're not good aliens. They're not bad aliens. They're just, it's beyond our understanding. So he beats the trap. But philosophically, there is a kind of a weakness at the core of any movie accepting those and a few others where they say there are aliens out there. Because if you have good aliens, it's the little green men who are going to save us, which is, a, which is bullshit. If they're bad aliens, everybody is going to come together to better... To, who cares about our differences? We're going to band together and we're going to beat those bad aliens. And it's a, it's, it's a way out, right? It's a way of saying we can paper over any of our differences because Zaxxon is invading. And I wanted to say... Because we had never seen a movie, uh, my co-writer Ethan Gross and I, we said we'd never seen a movie where there's nothing. There's nobody out there to save us, nobody out there to unify us to make sure that Russia gets along with America to create some nuclear thing that can... It's it. This is it. It's all we got. Now, is it possible... Is, I obviously steep myself in a lot of science about this, the Fermi paradox, if there's... Why haven't we heard anything with this great silence that SETI has been sending out signals for 30, 40 years? We've heard nothing. The great filter, are we behind it? Are we ahead of it? All this stuff, science fiction, but or science fact, I should say. But the truth is very simple. They can, you, I read all the time, you know, planet 7629838 is a Goldilocks planet. I read it all the time. I just go on the New York Times. They found a new planet. It's very Earth-like. It's incredibly Earth-like. And you could live on it. And, and, and you're like, it's, it's 900 light years away. Like, there's no chance we're ever going to get there. If there is alien life, it hasn't communicated with us. So we can't communicate with it. So even if it does exist, we can't talk to it. 
Maybe it's some plasma state thing we can't. So for all intents and purposes, we are alone. So what does that mean? That's a philosophical question. What does it mean? It's all we got. This is all we got. We're not creating life somewhere else. This is what we got. We can't terraform Titan yet. And I thought it's kind of high time that that's a concept. You might want to get that. Uh, that it's high time that we, we figure out what that means for us as a species, you know? I don't think we confront that because I think it's so easy and I read it every day. Are there aliens out there? And it's like, okay, let's say you found an intelligent uh, life somewhere. There's almost no doubt it would be way too far for us ever to reach it or to communicate with it. And then so what? Well, I'm curious where, I mean, where, uh, is it these kinds of questions that led to, because this was an original script, right, that you, uh, yeah, you I, and, and I Ethan... Had, yeah. I where, had read an where, article. Are you sitting there getting angry at where are aliens are? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, again, I'm hugely in favor of it. I would love to find out. But I think it's a crutch. I think it's a crutch that we, you know, we rely on. Um, I, I had read an article in 2011, some, uh, somewhere, I can't remember which publication it was. You'll forgive me. But anyway, the, the piece was about the Mars mission, which is 2033, they hope. Probably not, but they hope in which there's going to be four people who are going to have to be uh, cooped up in a craft that's probably just about the size of the stage. Have you seen this craft? And the craft is I, kind well, of they're gonna be, amazing. Well, they've oh, I've seen the Orion. I've seen the Artemis program. Oh, yeah. So you're talking about the, uh, the capsule. The next, uh, but now yeah. they're changing the plan because it was supposed to launch from the moon, which is why we did it in the movie. And then two months ago, they told me they're changing oh, the so plan. Oh, they screwed you. They screwed me over. <laughs> It's the, now they have this thing called the Gateway they're going to build. I didn't hear about this. That's just in uh, lunar orbit. Uh, they're right. going to build oh, yes, a craft in lunar yeah. orbit, which is then going to take off because it has lower gravitational pull than the Earth, so it's going to be less, require less thrust. So in any event, they're going to have to have four people in a, in a space like this for two years. So they're looking for people with, frankly, signs of schizoid personality disorder, mild Asperger's, people who are not reliant on others for social interaction because they would all drive each other nuts after two years. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's interesting. You're going to have the first people to walk on another planet, and they're going to be obviously totally ill-equipped to discuss anything philosophically, metaphysically. Like It's going to be like 96.7 cubic liters of oxygen left in the seventh cylinder. You know what I mean? So... <laughs> The irony being, you need those people to do it. I mean, Armstrong, who is, as you know, a remarkable, was a remarkable guy. The first thing he says out of the quarantine in his press conference with Aldrin and Collins, he's like, everybody else deserves credit. And uh, the thruster had 6.9 liters of which I thought your movie conveyed brilliantly well. He was great, but he was not a poet. And the world kind of wanted a poet. Mm -hmm. Now, the poet would have aborted. The poet wouldn't have flown over the crater and landed with seven seconds of fuel or whatever it was, right? So we needed him. But you got him, right? And then you had, and people were dying for it. What does it mean, Armstrong? You were walking, you were on another celestial body. You saw the earth from a vantage point for the first time that no other human ever has. But one thing, I mean, not to, not to digress, because I do no, want to get, ahead. but, but uh, it, it, the, the sort of non-poet thing, uh, 
because obviously it's true. And yet you hear those, you know, some of the people who walked on the moon talk and there is this kind of suddenly people who you'd think had no poetic bone in their body suddenly are spouting. And, 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 and it's something that, that Roy in this movie, you know, it's one thing I loved about the voiceover and how, and how you kind of, how you write that there's an effortless poetry to it that does not feel, it feels to me genuine to the poetry of astronauts. It's not the poetry of someone who's studied Wordsworth forever and is kind of, it's someone who just is looking at things that we tend to take for granted and the poetry that arises. You're, you're, you're quite right about that with the Apollo astronauts. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this documentary, and if you haven't, it's great, called For All Mankind. It was made in 1989. It was the 16 millimeter footage. I heard you screened that for... We did. For, for, I'm sure you guys did too. We, no? I mean, you can't escape it. It's, it's the, the great... But did you screen it for crew? We for, did. For we screened it cast? for everybody. For, yeah. But the thing that's amazing, because you're right, there's a lot of erudition that comes in a way that you don't expect from uh, Eugene Cernan and, and, and Harrison Schmidt and all those guys, all those white male guys from the middle of the country. And I say that mostly not Ohio. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. All like, from Ohio all went to <laughs> Purdue. And, you know, that's actually a problem. And not, and not only for politically correct reasons, although I do believe in that as well. It's, it's wrong simply because you have only one voice in that documentary. You're, you're looking up at the moon, you know, you're, you're on the moon and you see the earth and it's, and they're all talking the same way. <laughs> it's the same viewpoint of something monumental, which is very wrong, isn't it? You almost half expect and want to hear like some Brazilian woman start to talk about like, you know, like the moony surface was a very interesting, you know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, the point being, you're right, they get a little poetic, but that was always in, in retrospect. Yes. In other words, yes. when they interviewed Cernan, it was much later. It was 15 years yes. after he'd walked on the moon. And Edgar Mitchell, as you know, kind of went, lun, lun, and he started talking about aliens and yeah. his pancreatic cancer was going to be cured by engrams and all this kind of stuff. And Charlie Duke became a born-again Christian minister. Um, they definitely had life-changing, it had life-changing effects. Armstrong, I mean, Aldrin became an alcoholic, really, and very depre depressed. And anyway, something changed in them. Mm -hmm. But that took a little while to sink in. And so you're right, the poetry came, but it came later. We did try to capture that kind of thing. I had a, some help from a brilliant woman named Tracy K. Smith, who's a, po a poetess uh, who wrote a book called Life on Mars about her father working on the Hubble telescope. And some of that language, the, the, the language thing in the voiceover was was very much influenced by her stuff. But the, the idea there was, yeah, some kind of like poetic, but as you put it, not, not you know, not Wordsworth. So I, I think it was just a way of getting into the subjectivity of the experience and the intimacy of that moment, you know, because one thing you realize is that spacesuit is your entire spacecraft. Yes. That's your life. And the subjectivity of that, you know, I mean, the funny thing is the whole thing with, you know, 2001, we're hearing the breathing. Mm -hmm. Although I asked the astronauts, they said it was very loud. They said in the, in the spacesuit, you don't hear your own breathing. I said, really, you don't. They said, why not? I said, because it sounds like this. It's like, it's like standing next to a very large air conditioning unit. Well, you had, I, I, I was told that you didn't, you know, the, the, the normal practice these days in a lot of space movies is to CG the, uh, the, the, basically the bubbles, the helmets, uh, for obvious reasons. It's, it's, uh, you avoid a lot of things on set, yeah. like having to have the space, the spacesuits basically be many spacecrafts with cooling yeah. tubes and breathing tubes and everything. But I heard you, uh, went the practical route, uh, on, on that and a lot of other aspects in the movie. And that's, uh, 
Schmuck. It's a nightmare. I can tell you, I mean, schmuck. But you, know, you get the, the fog thing. and you get this beauty out of it. I mean, but believe me, I've never had more uh, issues on a set than with spacesuits. They're the worst right? things ever. But, yeah. uh, but you know, I, I only had a couple scenes in them. You do basically an entire movie. I mean, I, I can count on schmuck. <laughs> so tell me about it. Tell me how you learned. You sit, in this case, in my apartment in 2011, and you type zero gravity interior spacecraft. He's Roy's in his spacesuit, and you think you're all cool, and that's going to be nifty. And then nine years or eight years later, whatever it was, seven years later, you're on the set, and you're like, wait a minute, uh, move the camera one inch over. Do you still see it? Do you still see it? Do you still see it? Uh, okay, I know, Brad, you're 40 feet up, and you're hanging from wires. Give me one more second. Okay, over just a little more. And you get three takes, three shots a day, three, four setups a day, two or three takes each setup. And you feel like you're the champion of the planet because you got four setups that day. It's horrible. And I, the previous film I had made, I went to the jungle half the time. Yes. And it was really... You thought it couldn't get worse than yeah, that. Yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. Like, I wish I could be like, hi, Winston, it was remarkable. I had an incredible life-growing experience. I, 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 my mind opened up in a marvelous touch with nature. And I was like, no, it was horrible. I'm genetically designed to be an accountant in Minsk, okay? <laughs> I'm not genetically designed to be in Amazonia. So it was just all wrong. I looked like Moses dressed up as a beekeeper. It was very bad. <laughs> so I thought, this is going to be much, much better on me because I won't have to be having scorpions on my legs and stuff right. every five seconds. Where, where, where were you shooting? What, Z? Or no, this? no, 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 you, you answered Z. Z. The, this the, was the, in this Boyle one. Heights. Oh, well. I thought I'm going to get incredible food. I'd send them out. Then my assistant will go out and get some food. It'd be great. I'll be hanging out. You want to go to Neptune, you know? You just take a turn on Boyle Heights. It was, it was the hardest thing ever. It was the hardest thing. We built two versions I of the I can feel your pain. I know you do. I'm sure you do. Did you do the Vomit Comet? No. Uh, well, no. It's a longer story, but no. Did you? No, we, because it's only 40 seconds. Yeah. So, so, so how did you do We, we should explain what G. that is, actually. There's an airplane. It's basically a modified C-17 that does this dive where for 40 seconds you have no gravity and you float around like an astronaut. I couldn't wait to go on that plane, and it was such a shame that it didn't I'm work impressed. out logistically. I couldn't wait to not go on that plane. You know, no, it was incredible. They basically, it's called the Vomit Comet yeah. for a reason. Uh, I have to say, I know that Ron Howard and Tom Hanks actually did it for Apollo 13 for a few shots. Yeah, all the transition shots. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. But we, even There's if I wanted to. There's also an OK to, Go music video. That's right, a music video, that's correct. Yeah. But I, I didn't... Among other notable cinematic yeah. achievements. No, you're right. But I, I could not... Do it even if I wanted to, which of course none of us did. But even if we did want to, you don't get enough time yeah. to do a scene that way. So there's so what the, did you do? Well, the, there's the Alfonso Cuaron route, which is to go CG, mm -hmm. and that's a technical marvel that's mm -hmm. almost mind blowing. And then there's the sort of uh, the Kubrick old school route, and we tried to do a little of both. Mm -hmm. um, we built the same set twice, once vertically and once horizontal, mm. vertically and once horizontally, which I thought was awful. 
because you would do a close-up of Pitt, right, in a scene, and he would be on this rig that would make him float in close-up. And then you would do all your close-ups. Then two weeks later, the AD would be like, all right, picture's up. And you'd be doing like the wide for the scene you shot two weeks before, which, as you know, is awful. And you'd have Brad going up or, or Lauren Dean or whomever going up, getting put on these in this very uncomfortable harnesses rigged 50 feet up and going like this. Okay, ready? Five, four, and then going like this. And you'd have to get the take before the blood rushed to their head or else they'd all look like Buddy Hackett. So how many of you really know who Buddy Hackett is? I t I, oh, good, good. Um, my children are here. They don't know Buddy Hackett. Anyway, so we would get very few takes because the wides would be done in that way. And then they, the, most of the time, the wires would be obscured from the, from, by their bodies. But the, the frustrating thing is about half the time, their, their physicality would be wrong. So if they were hanging on the wires, they would be going like this. They would start to sway. And the minute they sway, the, the jig is up. You know exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. So we would have to wait for them to stop swaying. And then they'd be upside down. They'd want to vomit after about two takes. And this included the stuntmen who'd be like, all right, uh, Mr. Mr. Gary. They'd always say my name wrong. Mr. Gary, we're getting a little sick here, buddy. They'd say, okay, that's great, but you can come down. That's fine. And you know that if stuntmen are going to do that, then what chance do you got with normal humans? But Brad was a trooper. He never complained about it. But one of the things that's amazing is that... Uh, and again, it kind of speaks to the movie is that amidst all, you know, these sort of mind numbing, sometimes tedious uh, dealings with practicalities that just go naturally into shooting anything that's set in space. And here you do an entire two hour movie that is set, not just space, but deepest, deepest, deepest space where you are inventing whole worlds, um, uh, which is itself a complete feat. The movie is so intimate. It feels so just uh, glued to, to Brad, to Roy as a character, and in that sense, kind of effortless, kind of stream of consciousness, kind of, uh, you know, like something you could scrawl as poetry uh, on a so page. so nice to me, effortless. Wow, thank you. Uh, well, I didn't see wires, so that's my, that's what no, I'm really, uh, really saying. But uh, no, what I'm saying on well, a bigger no, level is that there's I know what you're saying, David. I'm, I'm, making, I'm making light of it. Thank you. I appreciate that. But it's because the idea, central idea was how personal can you get? Yeah. And how big can you go while how going? Big can you how, go? how small you know, can you go? It's funny. There is a, a big flaw to my logic because you can see something like A Woman Under the Influence, which was made for four and a half cents. And it's both unbelievably intimate and yet astonishingly vast. Mm -hmm. And it's one of my favorite films ever, really. But that's a woman under the influence. It's already been made. It exists. It's great. He did it. And um, we were trying to do a thing where you went to the outer edge of the solar system as a point of contrast with the intimacy, hoping that somehow it would allow us to focus even more on it. Because it, in a sense, the biggest struggle in any, I dare I use this dirty word, but I can in this building, in any work of art, good or bad, the biggest struggle, I don't know why you're laughing, I'm being all serious now. The biggest struggle is to make sure that it communicates the idea of our search for our identity. That's really at the core of, of, of really anything of value, I think. What does it mean to be a, a person? 
And in order to establish that with any kind of feeling, I think, you have to essentially take a risk and express yourself as personally as you can. And some people will hate it. Oh, look, that sucked. There will always be that. That's okay. They're valid. Their opinion is valid. But what is also valid is that it is your job, our job, to take that risk, to be willing to hear that somebody, your most intimate impressions have been conveyed on the screen. That is our job. That is our job to take that risk. If we don't take that risk, we, we, we may as well be investment bankers, right? That's the whole point of why we're here. I can, I'm being serious. We're the Directors Guild. Isn't that, no, we don't have to applaud. I, I, it's not an applause side. But if I can't say that here, by the way, I can't say it anywhere. <laughs> It's, it's, to me, the biggest struggle that we face in the movie business now. Because the idea of, a pers of personal expression, and I don't mean autobiographical, it's not our life story, but the idea of getting at the intimate, what is it that moves us, what is it that we think comprises that struggle for our identity? How is it that we can communicate that in our work? And we can use genre. We can use genre in very brilliant ways. I was talking about this the other day because it was in the vein of the superhero movie thing, which seems to have gripped us. By the way, I don't have anything about super, against superhero movies. I've seen some that I really like. Uh, my son and I watched the first Captain America. I thought it was incredibly entertaining. The problem is not superhero movies. The problem is only superhero movies. Like, you don't... You I love hamburgers, but if you made me eat a hamburger every day, forever, uh, that might get a little silly, right? But I was talking about Batman Returns, Tim Burton's second Batman. And he does get at something in Michelle Pfeiffer's character, which is something very personal. Chris Nolan gets at something with Heath Ledger that seems very personal. So you can do it even in that guise. But it's incumbent upon us to search for that thing, that thing that we can connect with. And I was very interested in telling a story about abandonment, about a father abandoning the son. And we had, in essence, started out by trying to do the Odyssey from Telemachus's point of view. With a little bit of pretension here, I'm sorry. But it ends very differently now, obviously. But, you know, Odysseus goes off for 20 years. What does it mean for Telemachus? Poor Telemachus. It's not called the Telemachus. <laughs> He was a little ignored. Um, but we thought that was an interesting kind of mythic basis for a story, the story of Telemachus. You notice there's a character named Helen in it. Anyway, but in myth, history and myth always begin in the microcosm of the personal. That's where it starts. So what we were anxious, I was anxious to tell something that was expressive about this idea of the father abandoning the son and what that means for the son and what that means for the son's identity, the son's sense of himself, how he could maybe transcend that by the end or maybe not. I think he can. I think he does. But to me, that was the, the core of what the movie really was about. Now, it's set in space simply because... To make the point that true terra incognita is the landscape of our soul, sometimes you have to go out there because people want to do the opposite than to look, than to look inside. Does this make any sense? Um, I don't know. Yes. It and does. It's, okay. It's as but beautifully I, put as but, it is But in the film. here's the thing, Damien. I know you know this. I know you know this. The, the entire core of being a movie director, if we're lucky enough to do this on any scale at all, 
is it's incumbent on us, I think, to do the deep dive, to do the work. Because in the end, it's about the extension of our sympathies. It's what makes, it's our religion. I'm not a religious person because my religion is the cinema. It's how I think that it's, it makes me feel more connected to the species. I see a glint in Claudette Colbert's eye and it happened one night and I connect with it as a work of magic. That's my religion. That makes, I understand her emotion in that moment. That makes me feel connected. It's beautiful. So if you're trying to do something in a personal realm, it's incumbent upon you to get as intimate as you can. You know, the painter Edward Hopper, he said, somebody said, how, what, you paint loneliness. You paint loneliness. He said, no, no. He said, my, my only aim in painting is the most exact transcription possible of my most intimate impressions. And it seems to me that that's our job, really, to try and express that. So you go to the edge of the solar system only as a point of contrast to get as small as you can, if that makes sense. 100%. It's, it's, uh, it's basically you doing with cinema what, uh, again, what those old astronauts uh, said was maybe the entire purpose of space exploration itself. And I think I can speak on behalf of everyone here um, that it means a lot that you're actually taking those kind of stabs, especially in today's, you know, today's age where movies of this magnitude and this kind of ambition are, feel like they're fewer and farther between. Uh, thank you for for doing it. You're welcome. And keeping the hope alive. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great Q&As with directors Michael Engler and Pedro Almodovar. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 